What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Greetings and welcome aboard the USS Future Imperfect, brought to you by the GeekCast Radio Network and ThisWeekInGeek.net. I'm one of your hosts this evening. I am Lieutenant Commander Mike the Birdman Dodd, and yes, I have taken control of this vessel. It is now under my command, and you shall Mutiny. deal with it. Mutiny. Exactly. Mutiny, because Steve, or Admiral Stephen Phillips is off on shore leave this week. He will be rejoining us next week uh, for a different topic, which we will talk about at the end of the show. But yes, I am joined from Michigan with... Aaron Pollier. I'm back. And of course, it wouldn't be anything on Twig or Alter Geek without my good friend and co-host... Uh, me, Alex. <laughs> That's right. Quickly <laughs> or, or interesting to say this time, except I think we're on an away mission. Is this... Is this or is this a holodeck mission? Yeah, it's more of actually that's not a bad thing to actually kind of say because this is more like a holodeck. As normally here on the show, we talk about Star Trek, but we've but we have broadened the, the topic and the reach of this show to include different sci-fi properties, and we wanted to include something um, that's maybe a little bit more near and dear to our hearts, and that is some sci-fi reading, some sci-fi books. And um, originally, we were going to have Steve talk uh, with, with us on the show, but he needs uh, some time off. Plus he admitted most of his sci-fi reading is generally Star Trek focused, whereas most of our reading in our little group here amongst us three is a little bit more diverse and a little bit more spread out. So we wanted to give a little bit of breadth to our experiences with this topic and sort of uh, kind of give you how we got into it, how we discovered it, because uh, each of us has a different story on how we fell into reading. Aaron himself is a professional writer, so... We're all going to have different viewpoints on how fiction has kind of shaped us, the fiction we consume now, what we're reading now, what are some of our favorite books kind of reading um, reading and growing up with. And um, I guess um, I'll kind of start the show just to kind of give you guys a little bit of time to percolate some of your uh, thoughts here. So um, as many of you know, um, I grew up in northern Ontario. I grew up in a town uh, near a place called Owen Sound, which is a population of about 20,000. Um, and we have one of the original libraries that I think Andrew uh, Carnegie founded back in the 1930s. It's a very old library. It's a very nice library. It has that very Miskatonic un university feel if you have that sort of Lovecraftian vibe to it. It's a very, very nice building. And when I was in grades, um, 
three and four, I started to want to branch out. Everybody was reading Beverly Clearly, uh, Judy Bloom. They were reading stuff that was more age appropriate. Then my grade four teacher, Mr. Dinkle, started reading us The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and Prince Caspian. And I can't remember what the second one was called, Voyage of the Dawn Treader or something. Um, and I started to realize there was more interesting stuff out there. Now, pr now, previous to this, I'd always read the junior reader science books that were in our school library. I'd read the books on dinosaurs. I'd read the books on space. I devoured those. I'd read books on movie special effects. Basically, anything nerdy and geeky. But I hadn't really dived into fiction uh, that was aimed at a younger audience. So... Going into my grade five year, um, there was a program, and this why I identify me as a relic and as a fat kid. Um, Pizza Hut used to have this like program where for every four books you would read, you would hit uh, you would hit a home run, and each book rep represented a base. And for every four books, you'd get a free per personal pan pizza. Well, I read a lot of books that year. Um, and one of the books that stuck out to me in terms of sci-fi, and this is just as the movie hype was starting to hit, I don't think I'd seen the movie yet, actually, was Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton. And I don't need to explain to you what Jurassic Park is. I mean, if you haven't seen it by now, I can't help you. Um, but it introduced to me a different type of fiction because it wasn't, goofy fantastical it was something that a lot of my peers weren't reading they were still reading like bruce coville my teach my fourth grade teacher is an alien or the goosebumps series or maybe christopher pike if they were a, a little bit more well read but nobody was taking a chance you might get the odd kid that was reading stephen king but didn't really get it um so I started reading this book and was utterly fascinating because I'd never seen anything that approached science fiction as I, I can't remember the exact quote, but I think Crichton said it prior to his death. He presented it as science possible or, or fiction that or science that that was possible. And reading it, I just got so wrapped up in the idea of the adventures of Dr. Grant, Tim, Lex, and Alex, and all of them. And it differs wildly from the movie. Like, Ian Malcolm dies, for example. Uh, John Hammond gets eaten by creatures. He falls down a hill and breaks his, uh, breaks his ankles, and these little creatures eat him. And then... In the first book. Yeah, like, it's just, it, it's so different. And then the sequel novel, The Lost World, that came out a couple of years later was the first sequel book he'd ever written at that time. And I remember reading that as well. But the book that really kind of got my imagination going, because I'd never seen the movie, I read the book first, because at that time, I was like, man, this is the same guy that wrote Jurassic Park. Anything he writes is going to be amazing. And it was a little science fiction book that he wrote back in, I want to say, 1967. And it was called The Andromeda Strain. Mm -hmm. And it's about a germ that comes down on a space probe that's uh, in the upper atmosphere or it, it's in space. And what The Andromeda Strain is, it's a germ that constantly mutates. And it will kill you because of the the acid level in your blood and it causes instant clotting either way you're dead within 30 seconds you have no chance 
it's pretty brutal. And this entire town that's located outside of um, Las Vegas gets wiped out, except for two people, an old man who's hooked on speed or something, and this little kid. And the only reason these two people survive is one has an abnormally acidic blood level because of all the drugs, and another one has, has an abnormally high base level in their blood because of some rare genetic um, disorder they have. So these scientists are trying to study this germ to figure out, well, how the hell can we stop it? Because if it gets out, bad things are going to happen. And this is where it gets a little fantastic because the germ is able to turn matter into energy. And it's told in the book that there's a nuclear fail-safe device. Should uh, a compromise happen to the base, it'll self-destruct with a nuclear explosion. So in this case, a nuclear explosion would turn the Andromeda strain into something really fucking bad. Um, and these scientists are racing to find out. Their friends are starting to drop around them. And the virus has mutated to the point where it's eating away at the plastic seals that 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 hold this like underground base and they're trying to race against time they're trying to figure it out obviously last minute heroics come in they save the day and it's found out that this was a, a germ that only lives up in high altitudes and mutated somehow when it came back down to earth and i was so intrigued by that because i'd never read anything that was hard science like that that approached it to a level that i could understand and i think i read that when i was in grade six and i went and saw the movie that came out and i want to say the late 70s early 80s um and i was just really like wow i'd never had a movie present ideas like that to me and by reading these different books i started to explore i i can't remember who i want to say it might have been asimov maybe i don't know i can't remember the title of the book but the plot was there was um a guy who was um disabled somehow i remember he had diabetes and he was playing this virtual reality game and somehow he got stuck inside the game and he was going to die unless he got his insulin. So he met another user inside the game and they tried to figure out a way to out to alert the police or the paramedics to his condition. But how do you do that when you're trapped inside this game world? There was like some evil computer hacker or something. And this was in like the early 1990s that I read this, I think the book predates this because I remember them talking about Beirut and the Druze. I guess that's some faction in the Middle East. Um, and I just remember being utterly, once again, these were such fascinating ideas. And as I went into later grades, I got introduced to something that really changed how I viewed sci-fi forever. Um, I used to call into this local radio station, CFOS uh, AM560 in Owen Sound, and I met one of the DJs talking every every Friday and Saturday night. This DJ had a call-in show, and because I was a fairly isolated kid, I would just start talking. I'd make requests to the DJ because I'd listen to 50s, 60s, and 70s music, but I'd just start talking talking to the DJ like, hi, how are you, Fred? Or Gary in this guy uh, was this guy's case. So me and Gary start talking over a few months. So he invites me and my mom to take a tour of the radio station. 
And he's, and one of these nights we're talking on, on the phone between songs that he's playing. And he tells me about his favorite book series growing up. And that was a book of series by, I think, I think she's Irish. She's passed away now, but her name was Anne McCaffrey. And Anne McCaffrey had written a series of short stories that, that eventually got collected into one book called Dragonflight. And Dragonflight, you may think it's it's a fantasy novel, and you're not wrong. But where this differs is where it crosses that sort of Thundar the Barbarian level of high-tech lost to barbarianism, or sort of that low-tech... Uh, agrarian lifestyle so basically scientists and colonists from the future earth's future colonate this place in like the sagittarius star system and they land on this planet called pern and so they go there they start noticing there are, there are these tiny creatures the size of house cats at the time that can fly and breathe fire they're like oh well that's weird so that's interesting and they start farming and colonizing and things are going fine but they notice there's this rogue planetoid that floats around the solar system and it only comes close to Pern every like 50 or 250 years. It's on a regular cycle. And one and so they've lived there for a while. And then this planet gets really, really, really close and something weird starts happening. And this weird biological material called thread starts falling down on the planet the little dragon-like creatures start killing it with their fire but everything biological this thing touches be it a person a crop plant life whatever dies instantly or gets scarred horribly it's like being touched with like acid and they lose their technology they get thrown back into the stone age because threadfall lasts a really really long time so they have to adapt their entire technology and civilization. So the fact they came with spaceships, lasers, flamethrowers, everything you can imagine is gone. So they have to rebuild their society. But while they do that, they take genetic modifications and grow these dragons to make them bigger because they are native life forms that can fight back against this stuff. They also discover these dragons are low level telepathic and because i guess psychics are just a thing in this world they start using certain humans to bond with them because the dragon when they're born the first person they see they impress upon so um that was interesting i'd never seen fantasy and sci-fi get crossed outside of like thundar the barbarian and that's goofy considering one of your characters is a giant sentient piece of goo um and I started reading more and more of Anne McCaffrey stuff because the series is like 23 books right now, although she passed away in like, I think the mid 2000s. Uh, her son continues to write, but she also had books called The Ship Who Sang, which is about a brain living inside a, a like starship. Uh, there was another series of books set in the Dragon Riders of Pern universe that was meant for young adults called the Harper Hall trilogy. And that basically tells about a bard, in this case, a Harper who raises uh, fire lizards, basically the lesser evolved cousins of, of, of like dragons. And she's able to impress upon a huge clutch. And she becomes known as like the fire lizard lady, more or less. And she's like the first female Harper in like a million years or something like, or some ridiculous time scale. And I just realized how much more complicated sci-fi could be now i'd read stuff like star trek and star wars i mean i read all the kevin j anderson stuff i read the 
the Timothy Zahn Thrawn trilogy, which was very groundbreaking for me. That got me into reading everything of Star Wars Expanded Universe put put out until the Yuuzhan Vong War came out. Because man, to hell with that! It just got way too complicated, and dropping a moon on Chewbacca was one step too far for me. And I just really looked at books differently because being from a small town, you don't have internet, you don't have cable, your best friend is the video store or video games. So books were an escape for me. And the fact that my teachers encouraged it through grades four, five, six, and seven really helped me expand my repertoire of what I was willing to read. I wasn't just reading what was appropriate. Eventually I would discover, um, Stephen King and he'd have very uh he'd have uh several sci-fi themed stories and like Skeleton Crew, The Dead uh The Dead not The Dead Zone, I can't remember what it was, but there was like a collection of short stories. Um the, there, the Bachman books. Bachman. Yeah. Yeah, and there was just like it it was different from anything I'd really gotten into and then um, I, I just want to mention this briefly before I pass it off to, to somebody else. My friend Liam uh, introduced me to something very, very, very different. Um, a crossing of two genres I never considered before. And he introduced me to H.P. Lovecraft. And despite the guy's politics, is he's a racist. Um, but <laughs> his contributions to the world of literature cannot be denied because he created the Cthulhu mythos, the idea of cosmic horror, the idea that aliens or monsters are literally, they're alien gods. They're, they're something so beyond what the mind can comprehend to look upon them is to know madness. So my friend Liam loaned me a book and I think it was the collected works of HP Lovecraft. It was like 10 or 15 stories all about the Cthulhu mythos. And I had never once again, ever thought of crossing sci-fi and horror. I mean, like I'd seen alien, aliens, alien three, whatever, but I'd never thought of the idea of a monster being so terrifying that just came from a world that the human mind couldn't handle. Like one monster I remember is the fun guy from YouGoth. And you might be wondering, well, what the hell is that? It's a literally a flying brain thing that comes from Pluto and they're time travelers, but they also have incredibly advanced weaponry and they're willing to use aliens and people in their plans to enslave humanity for reasons you will never understand it's things that you cannot comprehend because they're so much more advanced than you. And reading that it got me interested more into the world of role-playing games. Cause I remember for Christmas, I got the Cthulhu role-playing bunk, uh, Cthulhu punk role-playing book from uh, Steve Jackson games. And that was again, very monumental in my development uh, reading. And then I got into the star Wars RPG. I read Battletech. Um, I even read some of the short fiction that was read uh, or sorry, that was written for the Shadowrun game, which is once again, a mashup of magic and cyberpunk. And I did read stuff like William Gibson's um, Neuromancer. I can't remember. I've, Aaron, you might know this one. Who wrote The Difference Engine? Was that Gibson? Uh, the Difference Engine, That that yeah, that was Gibson, wasn't it? Um, that's a really good. So that's a really I'd read good. that one too and thought that was pretty neat. But um yeah, that's sort of my brief history with books. Mike, what's your favorite 
Cthulhu story, Call of Cthulhu story, like Lovecraft. Am I? I think we broke Michael. He's trying to think. <laughs> no, I I couldn't hear you. Well, I'm, can you hear me? I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah, oh yeah. That, that's what's, fine. what's your favorite Lovecraft story? Um, my I think it's the rats in the walls is one haunter in the dark and call of cthulhu is too easy an answer mm-hmm. but i think i know there was one where the bad guy was nar was narleth hotep but i can't remember what story that was. Up, yeah yeah i'd say mine is probably at the mountains of madness i haven't read that one and i know that's a sin <laughs> you know it's, it's probably my favorite but it's also like a full-length story if you know what i mean Mm-hmm. It's funny because my only experience with it, I got, I've i heard stories here and there, but the closest I've gotten to reading any of his books, even though I own one of those collected sets, is the John Carpenter movie uh, In the Mouth of Madness, which I don't know if it's based on exactly, but I know that that was the idea of the, the book is that it was supposed to be somewhat. Reanimator, Reanimator 2 is kind of close to Lovecraft okay, as well. Okay, so I've seen those. Uh, yeah, so because it, it's funny, it's, it's been on my shelf forever. It's one of those uh, when I forget was it Dover Publications or somebody was putting out these hardcover, a uh, really high quality, cheap like for like thirty bucks you could get every collected story from certain authors. Uh, I, I got that set probably about eight years ago and I just haven't read it. <laughs> I was like, it looks cool, I'll read it one day, and then I realized it's like fourteen hundred pages, and I'm like, I don't know if I'm gonna get through all of it. <laughs> it's worth it. Like I, I like Lovecraft. I, I have to say, I didn't discover Lovecraft until my mid twenties, and then there's like stories that I really, absolutely love, like Mountains of Madness. Um, the the, yeah, the the weird, the color from uh, space. Uh, I actually do like Call of Cthulhu, but uh, the Innsmouth look is also really good. What if you could have a career? Where the opportunities are as vast as our nation. Where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. But a lot of people like that. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's an interesting choice, Michael. Yeah, just because uh, again, just these stories, just that mix of sci-fi and horror. I had never thought to cross those two genres, and I know we're primarily talking sci-fi. And like I said, I could talk about the Star Wars expanded universe till I'm blue in the face. But if if I had to mention books, obviously the. Thrawn trilogy is worth reading. One book that I think it's unnecessarily slagged on, it was the book called The Courtship of Princess Leia, and it was done by Dave Wolverton. 
And it's basically how Han Solo wins Princess Leia. And he wins her a planet um, while the Rebel Alliance is trying to secure an alliance with some people, I think from the Hapian Cluster. I think it's near uh, the wild space sector, whatever. Um, and that's where they discover the sisters of Dathomir, who have stayed in canon for Star Wars for like decades now. And that's where Darth Maul's from, because he's a knight brother of Dathomir. So a little bit of trivia for you. Oh, and the book that you were mentioning about the guy that was stuck in um, virtual reality who was diabetic, it's Kilobyte by Pierce Anthony. That's it. That book I friggin' loved, and I found it by accident because it was on my library's uh, bookshelf, and I remember it having this stylized pink cover, and I was like, that looks cool. Gotta read that. It's up on my bookshelf somewhere. <laughs> but yeah, it's just... it it. It's amazing how much reading shaped me into the geek that I am today. And I'm so glad that I took a chance and didn't stick to what my peers around me were reading. Because like, like I grew up in a fairly isolated education system, but I had several teachers and um, authority figures who were very encouraging. Like my teacher, Mr. Collins was very encouraging of my love of sci-fi and space and everything. He encouraged me to like Star Trek. My teacher, Mr. Jordan encouraged me to read more fantasy type stuff, but also encouraged that, that, that asking questions, which kind of, I wouldn't say it's unfair to say he re he led me into respecting journalists. I remember one insult he tossed at me one day when I was in grade seven, he called me a Boston lawyer because I wouldn't stop arguing with him. Um, but it was just, and, but the primary influence was that DJ from Owen sound named Gary, uh, Gary Veraldi. And I really wish I had the chance to thank him because if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be who I am today. And thanks to him, he orchestrated a radio interview with Ann McCaffrey in the mid nineties. And I got a chance to ask Ann a question on the air. And I Which asked is, her, that's pretty big because your, your town was like 60,000 people. <laughs> 20. 20. I'm, talking, I'm talking where the radio station would service, right? Yeah, yeah. And when I talked with Anne, I was throwing out all these questions to her because she could she could tell I read the the like three dragon flight books. I read the Harper Hall trilogy, and when I started pronouncing the words from her books, and she's like, "You know how to pronounce weir?" I'm like, "Yeah." And this is before I started playing Dungeons and Dragons. So this is before Mike was even throwing bones at, at, at this point in his life. She was so impressed with me. Um, so that's a feather in my cap. That's one of my brushes with greatness. Well, cool. I, I don't know what else to say, man, but that sounds like you started at a pretty young age. Yeah, because I always wanted to know more about the world around me. Like even growing up, I, I this is a crystal clear memory. Uh, going to my dentist office, I must have been four or five, but my ten, my dentist had all these books on dinosaurs, and they were incredibly detailed. Like they they weren't thick like science textbooks, but they had big pictures of dinosaurs. They had all the names. They didn't dumb them down for you. Oh, and this I is. Think I think I know the ones you're talking about. We had those in like the third grade and one of our resource rooms. And I, I think yeah. I like, like they're kids books, but they would have, it was almost like full excerpts from uh, like an encyclopedia, but put into words that kids could understand. 
Yeah, like, like I, and this is a time, like, I remember this too, because this is before the Brontosaurus got nicknamed to the Diplodocus or some, or some bullshit like that. Uh, and it talked about that. It talked about the Ankylosaurus. There's that weird dinosaur that looks, that looks like a bird, but it has claws and like a really vicious looking beak. It's one of the most famous fossils ever made. And I can't pronounce its name to save my life. Yeah, um, I, I know the book you're talking about, and, and in the book it even shows in the mid 1800s when they were first putting it together, and how they pieced together it was like eight different dinosaurs, and they thought it was one giant animal that controlled the entire world. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, it was so it, weird. Where it was basically like some sort of chimera monster that was like four, four or five hundred feet tall. They thought it. They quite literally thought it was one animal that crawled and walked across the entire planet eating all other animals. Not that there was like a species of them. They thought it was one animal. <laughs> like it was just, it, it was so crazy just to take this interest in science. And then in the first grade when I went, and this is when they started putting out more books. Cause this is before, this is when Voyager one and two had been in the solar system for a few years. So this was pretty cutting edge stuff for us to get these books. And I remember seeing the flyby pictures of Jupiter, Saturn, and um, Uranus and just to see that vibrant blue with the big blue or the, the big dark spot on Uranus yep. to see the, the red spot on Jupiter, the moons of Io and Ganymede and Titan just I'm literally speechless because it made me open <laughs> the world to so much more. Like my parents wanted to raise me as a hockey player and a hick. I was much more interested in science and biology and technology and astronomy than I ever was anything that they had an interest in. And I think my parents always had a sore spot for that because I wanted to be a scholar rather than a jock. Well, I don't think my story is going to be nearly as long. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. I I, I didn't think I, I didn't think I'd have that much to say. Well, you've been going forty minutes. <laughs> what? Nearly. Oh my god, I'm so yeah. sorry. No, I, I'm thinking. I'm like, I don't have as much to say about my stuff. Mine's a little more basic. <laughs> but I may as well go now anyway. Uh, mine is sort of intertwined with. Uh, I was much more of the uh, rabbit television and movie sci-fi watcher first like some of my earliest memories are watching movies with my parents that i shouldn't have been watching like i don't know terminator when i'm three or four and i remember my parents saying oh isn't that too scary for him no he won't remember i remember <laughs> <laughs> you don't forget arnold pulling his eyeball out when you're three years old because <laughs> you remember the traumatic things although i was lucky in that i could tell the difference between real and fake very young so that was never an issue. So that my fascination with sci-fi happened when I was very little. It was, it was, you know, mixed in with my cartoons. I would watch adult science fiction. And I remember like it was Friday and Thursday nights. If there was a sci-fi show on, it was a family get together. We would sit down and watch everything like in a row, X-Files, all that sort of stuff. But as far as books from a very young age, uh, I had to, I was told if I wanted to have books read to me, I had to learn to read so I could read a page. My mom would read a page back. So I'm four or five years old and I'm already learning to read at the first and second grade level. Uh, so I was ahead of most of the other kids in class, but it was all the simple stuff at the beginning, uh, the Bruce Coville books, as you mentioned, Mike, but remember I'm about six or seven years younger than you. 
So it was, I was actually at the right age for them. <laughs> Whereas other kids you knew were reading goosebumps and all that stuff when they were, you know, 12, 13, 14, I was like five or six. So, uh, I can see where you came from with having the horror and, and maybe a little bit of comedy mixed with, uh, with your science fiction. And I remember like those other books, like the, my teachers and alien, all sort of stuff. That was what sort of got me interested initially because they were simple enough for a very young reader to read. Uh, and it wasn't like a comic book where, you know, a little kid reading a comic book, you're probably not reading the text. You're just looking at the action. This was something that forced you to actually read. So I read those. And then what really sparked my interest, uh, there was a lot of fantasy stuff as a kid, but there was a teacher. Was it the second grade? I don't know if it was Mrs. Jones in the second grade. It might have been the beginning of third grade. I think it was uh, with... Yeah, I think it was Mr. Callender, my third grade teacher, uh, where he made us uh, in class all read uh, a short story. I think it was two pages long, maybe. And I'm pretty sure it was part of the curriculum, but I think it was meant for older people because uh, of the subject matter. But uh, we had to read the story, uh, and I'm pretty sure Aaron would know what it is. It's called Examination Day. And I recognize that name. I Yeah. Okay, this, I think it was adapted eventually for Twilight Zone at some point in the 80s, maybe. Uh, but the books from the, or the short stories from the late 50s, and it's used as one of the earlier uh, English comprehension you know, workshops you would do where you read it, analyze it, write it down, and then your teachers find out whether or not you're stupid. <laughs> Which, I, you know, they would never say, but it was there to see sort of, uh, it was to gauge where you were at that point in your comprehension. And it is about a boy who is with his family and it's, it's time for him to go take a test and his family's worried about him. And he's like, don't worry, I'm going to ace the test. And he goes and takes the test and yeah. doesn't come out. And the government comes out, tells the family, uh, we're sorry to inform you your son passed. And it's a dystopian future where if you're over a certain level of intelligence, the government kills you because they want you to be dumb and happy. And then they tell the family, uh, you know, we can, you know, we can bury your son or you, you can, but uh, you'll be charged $10. And that you, and you read it once and you're like, holy crap, especially when you're eight. <laughs> and then you read it a second and third time. And as you're reading it the second, and third time, you then start to catch the hints of what's happening where a younger reader, you know, you won't. So I think they've made us read it when we were young just to sort of see where our comprehension was at. As an adult reading it, you'd probably catch it or at least one or two parts of it as you're reading through the couple pages. But that was my introduction to dystopian futures. Uh, and then after that, I started going to the library and I would take out books and they'd say, are you sure you want to read that? That's for an older, you know, age group than you. And then I would, you know, it would be like Animal Farm. <laughs> and I'm like nine years old pulling that out or 1984 or Brave New World. Uh, and then I was in, I think, sixth grade, and everybody else had to read. It was grade six or grade seven. They were reading The Hobbit, and I was like, I don't want to read The Hobbit. Because uh, I had already, you know, seen the cartoon movie. And I said, we're just going to talk about it in class. Can I read something else? And my teacher said, well, as long as it's something from this approved list. And, they gave, and it wasn't like an approved list, like you have bad books. It was something that would be part of the curriculum at some point in school. And I was like, cool. And that's where I found Fahrenheit 451, which is my favorite, one of my favorite books. Good book, yeah. Yeah, very uh, good pick. Especially when you're, you know, 12, 13 
that's that's a great book to pick up and it's it's not too hard to read it's it's pretty simple it's it's probably probably is magnum opus as far as very prolific writer but that's probably the one that sticks out the most and it's sad when i hear that it's on a lot of banned book lists now in different states <laughs> um which is surprising and not surprising at the same time but the the whole idea and i I saw that I read that and then I saw how many movies had copied it afterwards. Like you start to read these books and you're like, Oh, well, this is just a copy of this. This is a copy of this. This is a copy of this. You're like, Oh, it all comes back to Fahrenheit 451. Like it's the, it's probably in my mind, the quintessential dystopian book. There's other ones obviously, but the whole idea of firemen's job being to burn books and burn culture. And uh, it also helped that while I was reading it, it was also the month that we were doing World War II history. That's pretty so, apt, isn't it? Yeah, it was World War II history, and then it was leading into Black History Month. And so I'm reading this, and I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> it's like, now I get where he's coming from writing this. It's like, this could happen because it sort of did happen. It, you know, to not to the same extent, but it's like, this is... It was the vision, uh, it was his vision of what the future would be like if everybody became fascist Nazis. So, you know, I, I, it, I, we should, we could spoil it. I mean, it's just, Fireman burns books because you have to destroy culture because people that are dumb and, and just watch whatever the government wants you to watch on television uh, will keep you happy and satiated without ever having individual thought or creativity, meaning you'll do whatever you're told for the rest of your life. And then there's a struggle of whether or not, you know, is that really living? Uh, there's a lot of stuff in there that sort of parallels what's happening now with the way people just sort of sit in front of a screen all day absorbing media. Uh, there's a lot more creative stuff going on now. People create a lot of things. But the whole idea of uh, creativity being squashed by having too many options and too many things, it's 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 there and it's been adapted a couple times every time it's adapted it's never quite as good as just reading the book there was a new one on hbo with um, michael b jordan and i was like this is going to be the one that gets the book right and I'm like, nope <laughs> See, I, I i will i will say with fahrenheit 451 i don't think you can make it into a movie very well it uh, could be done as a I think would it be better as like an animated miniseries or something because it's very introspective. I don't know if I'd want it made into a good movie. I'd rather have it just be a good book. Does that make sense? Like Yeah. And, and it's, it's you're not like a book about books being burned and that has some sort of quality that adds to it. Yeah, and it, it is a, very, a lot of it is inner monologue and inner thought. So even listening to an audiobook of it isn't the same as reading it cuz you're supposed to be reading it almost as if you are that character yeah and uh, yeah i don't know if it would I, I don't know if it's supposed to be able to translate well yeah so it, it's people have tried the newest one was a neat adaptation but uh and that's it's one of those things where everybody that praises oh what was his name the director that equilibrium and that terrible ultraviolet movie and i all my friends that love the equilibrium i'm like it's just a bad rip off of fahrenheit they're like no it's an i'm like it's not an original idea that movie is just like a, almost a 100 rip off of fahrenheit 451 i'm surprised because the state was didn't sue them <laughs> because it, it's it's quite literally the same thing 
uh, only with except cool, with gun kata. Yeah, with cool gun kata. Ooh, great! And uh, a, a watered down message. <laughs> and Sean Bean dying. Sean Bean dies in everything, man. Like, it, actually, I think Sean Bean's he's in Fahrenheit 451, the new one. Really? Does I'm pretty he sure die? he dies. In, yes, I think he plays basically the same character, if I'm not mistaken, unless my fever dream has taken over. I love it. But, but yes, so that was sort of my broader introduction into it. Uh, and then I read little bits and pieces here and there, like I said, um, that were sort of the classics, Brave New World. I read random stories. And then I started, I got on a kick at the end of high school where I was like, what's the oldest science fiction stuff I can read? So it would be things like stuff written in the 16 or 1700s that we would consider now proto-science fiction. Uh, was it like uh, Utopia? And a few other ones where like sometimes these, these uh, you know, these were knighted people that ended up being burned or, or, or killed for their radical ideas of, a, uh, of writing a book that would, about Middle Ages. Like it was, they're, they're stuck in the Middle Ages or just past the Middle Ages slash into the Renaissance, but they're writing about uh, the ideal form of government in in the means of like a fantasy book, but it's really describing sort of what modern day politics would be like. So they're killed for it because the church doesn't like it. <laughs> There's a lot of those. Um, and then obviously I had uh, seen a lot of movies based on Jules Verne's work as well as uh, H.G. Wells. So I went back and made sure I read, you know, time machine and a few others because time travel is my favorite concept in, in, um, fiction writing altogether uh and then i went to college after a while of working and i went i have one elective i can take so i went what can i take They're like well it has to be a you know uh, a communications course or english literature and i was like okay let me look at the list everybody in my classes were taking uh communications and all this and i was going okay i've i got a 98 percent in my communications course the first year of college there's no reason for me to take another one what else is there? I'm like, oh, science fiction study. I'm like, this counts as a credit towards my business supply chain management course. And they're like, um, yeah, done. <laughs> <laughs> so I took that. It was a distance learning course that was taken amongst, uh, it was one, you like one section could take it. And it was, I think 50 or a hundred of us taking it online remote. And it was all across Ontario. People could take it. So we had a pretty big diversity of everybody there. And they gave us a list of things we had to read. I had read a couple of them, like Fahrenheit 451. They gave us a week or so to read it and then do an essay. And you had to discuss it in the online forum and chat. And I was done in one day because I already read the book. I just wrote my essay immediately. Got like 100% <laughs> on it, which <laughs> to the point where the professor's like, well, yeah, I guess it's one unit for everybody, so we all have to take the same thing. Is there any other, of these other books that you've read, Alex? I'm like, a couple. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, all right, read it again. And he goes, and by the way, I'm going to grade you harder. I'm like, you can't do that. And he's like, it's college. I can do what I want. And I'm like, okay, fair enough. <laughs> but I do I got, what I want. Basically, how I got around it was he would. he's like, I can grade you on a harder curve, or I'll grade you like everybody else as long as you help out some people if they have questions in the because in the group forums, you got extra credit if you help people if they were stuck. Not by correcting them, but if they were having a problem with the concept. It can happen where some of the students, maybe English was their second language, and they weren't quite getting something. They're like, I read this. Is this what it means? And, you know, it was my sort of job to go in there and be like, no, actually, that's a metaphor for this. And I, w I had to be careful not to give them a direct answer, but I could tell them, no, you're you're going up the wrong alley with that. And then... So I did quite well in that class. It actually helped me read a fair bit. 
And some of the uh, things we're reading were short stories. Some of them were um, shorter novels. Uh, like I had to read The Left Hand of Darkness, which was really good by um, Ursula K. Uh, McGuine. And it was, uh, you know, we had to read a, a, a different book from different types of, of science fiction, different subgenres. And this was the, my introduction, I guess, to, I guess, what would you call it, feminist science fiction? Or I think that's what they called it in the course outline in the syllabus. But uh, what was it about? Um, men are bad. <laughs> so this was a very early example. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. For the more modern interpretation. Yeah, it, it, was, it was a full, it was a, it was a short story in 1964. Uh, if I remember, it was late 60s. It was expanded into a full book. Uh, going based on memory, uh, it's about a human native on, um, a planet and you sort of examine it's, it's a world where, okay, a lot of things happen. Basically. I, I I remember I liked it and it was one of the standout ones, but it's one of the ones I have to go back and read again because I had to speed read it for the class. I just remember being introduced to it. There was also another one of her short stories that came out. And I think, I don't remember exactly the, the name of the book, but it was about people living on Venus or Mercury. And I remember it being pretty good for what it was. And I remember a lot of people not getting it, not getting the message behind it in class. Uh, but I, I was, that's where I was introduced to that. And then from there, a couple of her short stories were in this big volume uh, where it's like they would collect the best science fiction uh, short stories of whatever year and you could go to chapters or your other brick and mortar store and pay like 30 bucks and get like a hundred stories that were written that year and they were all ones that were either nominated for big awards won big awards or from famous writers that put something out that year and that was pretty cool so i got to dive into that in my in-between time when i wasn't playing video games or studying uh, as far as other books we had to read there i had already read 2001 space odyssey the the uh i guess novel companion to the movie because i had seen the movie a couple times and went i don't get it <laughs> as a kid i'm like i just I don't, I don't get it like where's all the lasers and where's all the fighting i want this to be star wars as like every nine-year-old does and then i'm 15 16 and i read the book and i go oh the book adds a little bit more even though the movie was written first then they wrote the book to sort of give it a little more but the uh subsequent novels that were in that series from from um uh I believe the first one was co-written with Kubrick in mind, but the rest, uh, the rest were Arthur C. Clarke. I, I enjoyed reading, uh, 2010, 2061 and 3001. Even like, I, I actually like the books more than I like the movies. I, well, especially the second movie with Roy Scheider's not that great. 
but, but the the whole idea of of hard sci-fi or the introduction of of things that were based on somewhat reality or what could happen is what I found interesting because it wasn't like crazy fantasy sci-fi. Almost everything Arthur, Arthur C. Clarke did was based on he would talk to people at NASA, be like, "Where do you see us in in the future based on the technology you're working on now?" And he would base his books on what would be perceived as being possible. So things like space bridges, uh, like Mike, you do seen that in, in books and in games where uh, ships launch from space, but to get there, you basically go up a giant elevator. That's yeah. a space elevator. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that sort of stuff. Uh, and I was like, oh, it's all fantasy. And in his books, they would, you'd read the books and then you'd go do the research. You're like, oh, he's basing it on things they're actually planning on trying to do. Or at least they were till their funding was cut like to nothing in the last 50 years. <laughs> uh, so I really liked them. The other one we had to read for class, because I had read those, those the Odyssey books. And those are probably some of my favorites, was we had to read uh, Childhood's End, which if you haven't read that, that's a doozy of a book too. They've made a TV miniseries about it. It's crap. Um, that's one thing you'll probably find is that most really good sci-fi isn't adaptable to most movies, unless you have somebody really good doing it without any interference. Uh, Childhood's End uh, is what happens if aliens come down, offer to um, basically help us evolve along a path to being the best we can possibly be on the condition that uh, um, we sort of do what they say. It stops all violence, stops all war. Uh, they appear to us, they never show themselves. And they are, what's revealed is they're basically uplifting us to be the best we can be. So uh, they can pick one of us, or in some cases more, but they pick one of us to then leave with them when our our planet dies. And at the very end, it's revealed that they look like demons. They look, oh. like, they look like what we would traditionally call devils, and they purposely didn't reveal themselves because they knew our preconceptions based on our, our dominant religions on the planet. So there literally, there is no malevolent force there. We like, and as the book you're reading, you think there might be, you think there is, there's, there's, you know, there's gotta be deception. And then you, as you're reading it, you get to the end, you find out, no, no, they're legitimately benevolent. They just know that our, our bigotry would not allow them to be viewed as anything but evil. This sounds like a wicked episode of the Twilight Zone. Yeah, yeah, it does. It's a good read, too. It's not that long. It's like from 1953. Uh, there was a three-part um, four-hour miniseries, I think, on the Sci-Fi Channel. And it, it's it's actually not bad, but, Mike, it's probably worth reading. I think I have a copy of it lying around I can send you. Um, it's 214 pages, which is not long considering some of Clark's or some of my or, RPG books. Yeah. And it's actually really good. Like there, it's split up into three sections, earth and the overlords, the golden age and the last generation. So it, it's really, really good. considering it was written, you know, over 60 years ago. Uh, it, it's surprisingly good. And, you know, I, I know I've spoiled the end for you, but <laughs> it is what it's, uh, did you ever read that one, Aaron? I don't think so. Uh, you know, I, I can't I can't recall if I have or not. It doesn't seem familiar to me. It's I found out it was something that was taught in schools here, and then they just dropped it at one point. I don't know. Maybe it's because the whole uh, message that religion might be deceiving you. 
<laughs> is one thing. Uh, uh, and, and we'll get into my reading, my reading background, <laughs> which is a lot different than most people's anyway. But yeah. fair enough. And and sort of the last section, like I've talked before on the show how uh, I really ended up liking Ender's Game, and I read it when I was just out of high school, even though it was meant for younger readers. And it, I could see it as a good gateway for kids to get into books because again, it's one of those has an M Night Shyamalan mind fuck sort of twist in it. Pretty, pretty. I was I could see how it would mess kids up if they were reading it when they're like twelve or thirteen. Yeah, you know, and, you you have to be fairly young to read that because I remember when I read it for the first time, it was not spoiled for me, but I think I might have been, I might have been ten or eleven, and I was like in the first fifty pages, this, this guy's actually fighting the war. This yeah. is all just, it's not a game. This yeah, is yeah. Like the the idea is you're, you're you're being told it's a game, and then you find out you've committed genocide. Yeah, and I'm like, uh, it, it didn't shock me at all. The book, yeah, the it, it it didn't shock me, but I, like, it wasn't. I wasn't expecting it to necessarily go that way, and I was like, okay. And then I read the next three novels in the series, and I'm like, they're better. They, I did like how they went into like quantum theory and entanglement and that sort of stuff. But uh, I liked it less as it went on. Like the second book is really good, and I can see why it also won a whole bunch of awards. The third book is good, and it starts to get all. It starts to veer out a little bit. The fourth book, I only got about halfway through, and then I read about who he is as a person <laughs> and went, why are so many good science fiction writers horrible people? Yeah. It's, just, it, it's like it's like why I read, you know, I, I read Starship Troopers. I'm like, this is okay. And then you find out what Highland's like, and you're like, ugh, why? Yeah, that was super disappointing. Yeah, I, I read, I've read, I read Starship Troopers, and oh god, what's the one where it's Stranger. the guy on Mars? Yeah, Stranger in a Strange Land, and I'm like, this guy's messed up. That's that's just I, I yeah. have I can talk I can talk about Starship Troopers for a while. It is an entertaining <laughs> book, but you realize when you realize that this that Heinlein kind of thinks some of the things that the government thinks in uh, Starship Troopers. He's you're like, okay. yeah, yeah. His like his politics are that you should serve and that there are bad races. <laughs> if you but those races can but that that the only way to overcome racism is to basically become fascist and become a one nation army. But even then yeah. you're still but the idea is you still won't be better than the white people in the army is kind of the message he gives and he's tried to defend it. <laughs> so yeah, um, Paul Verhoeven made a much better movie than, uh, than the, and, and took from that a lot more than um, maybe the initial original message was. And I can see why he was a very um, divisive writer. <laughs> but again, I, I like the idea that I was surprised that the book was so significantly different. It's one of the first times I read a book and went, Wow, the movie's so different. Like yeah, I, same here. I, I always thought that books were almost identical, and then I read that, and then I saw Harry Potter, the second movie, uh, Chamber of Secrets, and hated it because half of the book seemed to not be in there. Mm. Yeah. So the, the last one I'll talk about here is around the same time when I was in high school, I would read off and on um, Asimov stuff like I Robot, and I, I, I Robot, I. I used to like it when I read it as a kid and then I hated it because it was adapted a million times and we had to learn about it in school. And anytime a teacher forces you to, to read or watch a thing over and over again, it gets boring. And I hated the Will Smith movie. Um, even though 
Uh, I remember oh, my, yeah. my grandpa bought it on DVHS, high-definition VHS tapes in 2002, because he thought that was going to be the future of home media, which I'm sure there's a collector out there that would probably want that VHS tape that was in 1080i, but we never opened it or watched it because it was iRobot. <laughs> um, but I ended up reading the Foundation books from Asimov, which I guess are... I think they're finally being adapted or they're trying to on like HBO. I don't know how they're going to. They're Those are interesting books. Yeah. The, the, it's, it's hard to almost describe to anybody that hasn't read them, but there's, it, it was initially, I think two or three books and then it spread out from there and they made prequels and sequels. And, and the, it, it was, I believe considered the quintessential hard, hard sci-fi for the longest time. Right. Like, I think it was written in the early 50s. Um, and it, the whole idea is it's, it's about somebody who predicts the downfall and collapse of a galactic empire, an empire that spans beyond anything we could possibly conceive right now. So, like, Mike, think, um, think Star Wars if it was 10 times larger. Oh, it's basically the entire galaxy has been colonized, that every world that is possibly able to be settled or terraformed has been. Yeah, and, and things are starting to look a little bit like Blade Runner. And you have a person that was uh, uh, is considered a uh, psychohistorian. The idea is, uh, can you... The idea of using patterns of the past to predict the future and uh, the main character has predicted the it's fall of the Roman Empire and it's fall of the Roman Empire in the future and how uh, the events come to play and you sort of start to see how it happens and it's described in great detail it's, it's like you got in a spaceship and then they'll just describe how the spaceship works and then for pages normally I hate that sort of thing that's why I really didn't like Tolkien I hated reading Lord of the Rings it was just too much. But that was just me. I, I hate writers that do that. I, I'm with you, too. I actually don't like the Lord of the Rings books, which I know is heresy. I know it is. but I like I'm, the movies. I don't like the books. But, yeah, this this to me was more fascinating because for whatever reason, you know, uh, wizards and, and dragons don't do it for me when it comes to that much detail. But uh, um, sail ships in space do it. <laughs> I'm okay with it. So uh, it it is a very difficult. Like, I can't really go into more detail because you have to read the books. Just to know that when it was announced that it was getting an adaptation, I was like, really? Who's going to do this? And how are they going to screw it up? But it depends. If they go, hey, we're going to spend the first five years on the first book, maybe. <laughs> I, um, I, you can't do a movie off of it. Like, there's just no way. You'd have to have, a, like, a TV series. And the first book would easily be, it. you know, you. I don't know if you could do it well in one season probably could do it but it, it wouldn't it wouldn't do justice to the text yeah like there's there's multiple factions there's encyclopedists there's all this but i'll give you mike a bit of a background the main character in it uh is harry uh, selden uh it, the story begins it's just this sort of a summary on uh Trantor, the capital of the twelve thousand year old galactic empire uh powerful slowly decaying empire uh, Hari Selden is a mathematician and psychologist, has developed uh, psychohistory, a new field of science and psychology that equates all possibilities in large societies to mathematics, allowing for the prediction of future events. By means of psychohistory, Selden has discovered the declining nature of the empire, uh, angering the aristocratic members of the Committee of the Public Safety, the de facto rulers of the empire. 
The committee considers Selden's views and statements uh, treasonous, and he is to be arrested along with his young math- mathematician, Gal Dornick, uh, who has arrived in Trander to meet Selden. Uh, Selden is tried by the committee and defends his beliefs, explaining his theories and predictions, including his belief that the Empire will collapse in 500 years and enter a 30,000-year dark age. Uh, he informs the committee that an alternative to his future is attainable and explains to them that creating a compendium of all human knowledge, the Encyclopedia Galactica, would not avert the uh, the inevitable fall of the Empire, but would reduce the Dark Age to one millennium. And it goes from there where you, over the course of the books, you see everything he's predicted come to pass and how uh, they're going to survive it and move forward. It's sort of like taking the fall of the Roman Empire, uh, applying it to modern history, and then going way out there. And everything that's written in there somehow makes sense. It, there's not really a whole lot of garbledygook. Like, there's not a whole lot of Deus Ex Machina science fiction gets fixed by magical tricorder dilithium crystal stuff. It's here's you know they'll say here's what's going to happen and here's why and how and how we came to that conclusion. It's kind of stuff that I think you would like, Mike. Yeah, it actually does sound kind of neat. I like it. I like it. It's, but it's definitely a uh, not an easy read. Yeah, it, it took me. It's only it's under three hundred pages long. But I tried reading it when I was in like the tenth grade, and I didn't really get a hold of it till I was um, in college. Simply because I, you ha- you can't just speed read it. You have to be reading the page, and then you'll read a chapter, and then you'll sit there for like five minutes and go, oh, and then move on. It's a it's a real thinking man or thinking woman's book. And again, written nearly 60 years ago, or 70 years ago, nearly. So yeah, that's uh, that's pretty much my history with it. All right, Aaron, you're up next. Okay, so I guess I'll, I'll start by saying, once again, my reading habits as a child, uh, even as a teen, are probably a lot stranger than most people. I kind of grew up in uh, in a family that I got to watch films more than i was able to go out and play sports i just wasn't a very sporty kid so i kind of started my my first real memories are like seeing star trek on tv seeing seeing the motion picture at a drive-in theater believe it or not i barely remember that i honestly think you are very similar to our backgrounds that way (laughs) at least we were not sports people i don't know about but I mean, I stayed inside all the time, right? And and I, I ended up watching a lot of the old 1950s and 60s B movies. Well, you know, my I loved reading as well. But I even as like a five six year old, I would end up reading space books rather than kids books. So like one of the one of the earliest books I remember checking out of the library many many times, and this I, I guarantee you was first grade was Isaac Asimov's The Universe. I remember checking that out multiple times to, to read through it. And that's a nonfiction book. So I'd say up until I was around eight or nine, all I generally read were actual like astronomy books, um, books on dinosaurs that were not, you know, fiction, but it was, you know, Hey, dinosaurs, you're a kid. You love dinosaurs. Well, right? That universe book. I, I remember my grandfather having it and it was like the precursor to Hawkins, um, a brief history of time. Like that was the book. Yeah. For- before that came out as far as uh, space and time. And believe it or not, years later, I got that actual book from my elementary school library and a book sale, which oh, is nice. Crazy. I still, ha- I actually can see it on my shelf. Right does, now. does it have the little card slip in there where you signed it out? Yeah. 
and you know little dewey decimal numbers on the side and everything yeah but uh anyway i i would read all that but then i got into a point where i wanted to read um fiction i wanted to read stories and so my context of what stories were like what good books were were either good films that i had seen that i wanted to read the books of like dracula or frankenstein or hg wells the time machine or war of the worlds so my first science fiction would be those kinds of classics that people would go oh these are kind of the first science fiction works so i i got my first steps into the genre with the first steps into the genre it's kind of odd that way but unlike a lot of people and their progression into like more either uh more approachable science fiction or more approachable fantasy i ended up diving almost immediately into a very strange um subgenre for like an eight or nine year old to go into and that's post-apocalyptic fiction <laughs> and, and that seems once again that seems very odd but again i came from a family that you know I, I i hung out with my grandparents more often than not and they had survived the war and and the holocaust and there's many stories about you know death and destruction and it was kind of you know you're, you're surrounded by it in, in many ways and so i remember reading a last babylon uh on the beach um, Red Alert, boy, that that was something from like printed in 1958. It's what um, Doctor Strangelove is based off of. Um, I remember reading Zia's for Zachariah. Um, what's another one? The Last Ship before it was made into a TV show. Yeah, that, I think that was published back in in the late 80s. But I remember reading that. Um, so I got I got a lot of my post apocalyptic fiction like drive out of me fairly young. And now I don't like even hearing, um, you know, the the tornado sirens to the to that point. But, uh, you know, if, if you want to read some good post-apocalyptic fiction, you know, I wouldn't go to The Road or something like that. It's some of these old ones that are really, really grim it, to me, like on the beach yeah. is honestly grim. Don't you notice that, though, that it seems that any of these books written before the 70s seem to be the sharpest ones? And yeah. I don't think it's a matter of people being stymied and untold. They can't write things like that. I just wonder if people, I wonder if it's because of that generation that came out of World War One and World War Two. that's what they chose to write about because it's what they saw. Yeah. And I, I don't know. It, I remember being so moved by On the Beach. I remember reading like the last part of it and just crying afterwards as people were taking their suicide pills. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And like 
going, my God, you know, I probably would make the same decision. Here's here's like a 11, 12 year old going, holy crap. You know, yeah, I'd probably rather die by taking a cyanide pill than by slow death by radiation sickness. And then, you know, I was probably the last generation that actually had um, duck and cover drills even in high school. Well, not in high school, excuse me, in, in elementary school. Um, so we had them, we had them here. <laughs> Until I was and, in the third grade. I grew up in an area right between two nuclear um, nuclear power plants and right across the lake from Chicago. So, you know, it was yeah. like, yeah, you know, I'm going to die in a flash. We, we right. have, uh, or we had, uh, I think, is Pickering still open, Mike? Um, yes. Pickering Nuclear and Bruce Nuclear, the two ma- biggest nuclear power plants for, they cover most of Canada. I think they're two of the biggest in North America because they do all of Canada other than Niagara Falls, they're each within about an hour and a half's drive of where we live. <laughs> so we were doing those drills, and then we were also doing... Then I'm from the generation where we had intruder alerts because of uh, Columbine. Oh, wow. So we did uh, both. <laughs> the, uh, I, I remember being like, why... I would say to the teacher, why are we ducking under a desk if a newt goes off, we're all dead? And she's like, shh, stop it, Alex, it's being morbid. I'm like, what's being morbid is telling us to sit under our desk. <laughs> when, like... What what good is that? Why don't we all get into the basement? Why don't we go to the boiler room? Like, why is it? And then I realized not everybody in school would fit in the boiler room. Yeah. No, I mean, I reading those books, you know, obviously had an impact on me. I mean, I remember as a kid putting putting canned goods into my basement because I didn't know when the bombs would fall. Oof, and yeah. that's, you know, like when you're you're that terrified from these weird fiction books that you're reading, you know, they've obviously impacted you, right? But I always, in the end, I always had Star Trek to go back to this kind of hopeful future. And I guess that helped balance things out. Um, I don't know, through high school, I didn't really read a ton of science fiction outside of the the big ones that uh, the big series that everyone can always think of. I read Star Trek novels. I read uh, Doctor Who novels, either the novelizations of the old TV shows or the the Virgin books when when it when they started coming out. Um I didn't really do a lot of the big other classics uh, like Dune. I, I'm just I'm actually rereading Dune now for the first time. Well, not the first time. I'm rereading it because back when I was in my early twenties, I tried reading it and I just couldn't get into it. Now I'm actually appreciating it. More. I tried and I really um, didn't care for how it was written. Uh, I I was somebody who actually enjoyed the uh, miniseries and movies better. Uh, I'm, I'm enjoying. I might go back now and try it because, again, I, I, I couldn't get into uh, Foundation initially. So maybe uh, it just wasn't it wasn't right for me because I had friends that would gush over it. And I'm like, I just don't get it. I like the world building in it by, by, you know, that's probably the best part of it. And, you know, I'm not sure I like the characters. I don't think I really like the, some of the ideas that are presented, but I really like the world building. Anyway, there are a few, like, authors that I think I could touch on that I did read through high school in my very early 20s. And, and one of them is uh, Frederick Pohl, um, another guy that's had some, you know, questionable, a science fiction author with some questionable, you know, beliefs. But um, he wrote probably my favorite sci-fi novel of all time, The Coming of the Quantum Cats. And that was published back in 1986. And I, in, our, in a talk a couple, well, at least a few episodes ago, it, that's, uh, it's what Sliders was based off of. Um, oh, so that's right. Before, I have to go back and read that now. Before Sliders came out, 
I already knew the story. It, well, I knew what they were trying to say. And basically, it's a novel that takes place on multiple Earths with multiple versions of the same characters. And they're all um, kind of researching interdimensional travel. But there's consequences to it that every time somebody moves between parallel worlds, there's something called like, I think they call it ballistic, uh, ballistic return. And it basically means that if, if a person goes through an equal amount of material from the other universe comes into a different universe. But in the end, all the multiverse has to like even out in mass. So as more Earths start discovering this multidimensional travel, more stuff starts bursting through onto Earths. And there's like uh, all these like uh, in-between chapter descriptions of some of these events where there's a world that doesn't have rabies and all of a sudden a flock of, of, of bats comes through that has rabies and it just wipes out all human life on this world because of it. Um, that no one had any kind of immunity to, to this at all. There was nothing like it on this earth and boom, everyone's done. Or suddenly there's giant chunks of, uh, of land just disappearing out of places. But anyway, the book goes through, um, some really interesting situations that are occurring. Um, I love the book. Uh, he also wrote uh, a series called the Hichi saga, which is an interesting, I, I it's an interesting sci-fi universe where uh, earth was visited in the past by the Hichi, another, another civilization, an alien civilization, but they built these gateways and they left like a space station in, I think it's in orbit of Venus. Boy, it's been a long time since I read the Hichi saga. But uh, when humans discover it, they also discover that all these spaceships got left behind. But they're not faster than light spaceships. They're basically like just little shuttles. And they're designed to go through these gateways. And the gateways are kind of like stargates in that you can open them up to coordinates, but you're not really sure where that goes. So people like explorers will go through the gateways, going to wherever they go. And if they come back, they usually come back with something that they found on the other side, like some sort of alien technology and they can become fabulously wealthy, but very few people do return. And it's the, the tale of a couple of these characters that go out on an expedition and come back and you know, what happened to the Hichi, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I recommend that series as well. Um, but as, uh, as for like further things that I, I really appreciate, I love hard sci-fi when I can find it. And I also really enjoy good military science fiction when I can find it. Um, but that's really tough to find. So my, my good hard sci-fi series that I absolutely adore is the culture series by Ian e M banks. Um, I highly recommend it. It's a very interesting series that takes place in our galaxy and it's not really humans that are the main characters, though humans do come into it later on, but it's kind of meaningless in that everyone's referred to as human anyway. I don't know. It's hard to describe. Like, it's just that they think of themselves as people and they can look however they want to. But it's, it's effectively a post-scarcity society that um, exists throughout a big chunk of the Milky Way. Um, everything they can make is... Uh, well... I should start by saying they generally don't like living on planets. So if you become a part of the culture, this kind of interstellar empire, you leave your planet because uh, planets are there for intelligent life to evolve on. 
And if you're already intelligent, you should get off and let other species in another couple million years live. So the culture ends up building giant mega projects all the time. Like, hey, look, we're going to build the Dyson sphere around this this star, or we're going to build huge disc worlds or ring worlds, things like that. <coughs> um, their ships are intelligent and they're people, and they they have characters in the books and they're very interesting um but usually you think well how are you going to have stories in this universe and there's generally not a lot of crossover between the books for characters so each is a new each novel is a new situation that in general all the power in the universe can't really solve and it comes down to um a person with their individual skills trying to figure out a problem that is beyond the godlike intelligence of these ships. Um, so one of the books I recommend in that series is called the player of games. And it's the culture interacting with another up and coming civilization out in the large melogenetic cloud, um, Magellanic cloud. And they have to send a guy that's really good at playing games. Since you're in a post scarcity society, basically anyone can just do what they want with their time for as long as they live. And this person has chosen to be the best at playing games of chance as possible chance or skill. He's, he's good at really a lot of different things, but he's sent out to the civilization because this group of beings out in the, the large cloud has developed their society around playing a game in that everyone in their society plays this game to determine what they are doing for their job, their position in society, their prestige, um, all the way from their, their leader. Like, their leaders have to play to become the their emperor, so to speak. Um, their priest cast. Uh, in order to be in charge of a factory or something, you need to be able to win that aspect of the game. And this guy is sent out there by the culture because the culture wants to understand how this game is played. And it turns out that this guy really hates the society for very good reasons once he gets there and starts understanding what they're all about. And instead of just playing the game as an observer, as somebody that's just wanting to learn the game, he ends up trying to play it to win. And it's a very fascinating book. And you think, man, that sounds kind of boring. This guy just trying to play a game. But it, it is absorbing and it's like 600 pages maybe well, i can look it up but i mean it's amazing this book and all of them are like that every single one of them oh no it's one of his shorter books it's almost 300 in in in, in uh the trade paperback but um all of his books are basically every chapter that you read you just kind of need to sit down for a second and digest them really turn it over in your head and figure out what what was just told to me and how does that affect what I I'm, think. See. I'm going to have to get all these written down so I can go back and actually check them out. Now that I realize that my local library has a lot of these available, um, you can actually check them out digitally using an app on your phone or on your tablet. So hmm. I might just have to start doing that. Yeah, I, I mean, these are great books. And unfortunately, Ian M. Banks died, I think, in 2014. So he, he, there aren't any new ones coming out. And I don't think there's an author out there that could add to the canon. Um, his style of writing and uh, his, his ability is just unique. Uh, I, I absolutely love it. Um, if you want good hard science fiction with characters that are far beyond humanity and what we kind of see and and think and feel here are characters that 
these ships might be a thousand years old or a few hundred years old. And how does that, what does that mean to trying to communicate to a human that might've only been alive for 50 or 60 years? No, I don't know. It's it, it really interesting, really interesting. Um, at some point in their timeline, they do contact earth and earth becomes a part of the, uh, the culture, but it's such an insignificant um, part of their overall being that it literally isn't even mentioned. The only reason you can tell is that one ship names itself after a ship, uh, well, a concept on Earth. And I even forget it. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Hindi concept. And that's the only reason you understand that culture has made contact with Earth. Like, it, it, yeah, it's really subtle and good. Um, Anyway, yeah, I can I can gush about about that for a long time, but yeah, obviously I have read some um, some strange material um, that a lot of people generally haven't. Um, yeah. Like I, that sounds like you 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 are definitely much more well read than we are. <laughs> we, yeah, we went we went for the classics. Like there's odd ones that I've read, but I was the guy that was like, let's see what won awards, and I'll read those. <laughs> which, oh, which should, I should. Say that- Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, which, you know, honestly, just covering the ones that have won awards, it's still more than I would say. I'm surprised that like 90% of people I've met haven't read any of the books we've talked about. Oh, geez. Okay. Well, um, the, you know, the, 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 what, what, what am I, what am I trying to, trying to say? Oh, the, uh, the spaceport drone ships that, um, SpaceX has been using. They have names, right? Yeah, yeah. Just read the instructions. Of course, I still love you. A shortfall of gravitas are the, are the three. Those are actually ship names from the Culture series. Oh. Um, yeah, okay. Eon, yeah, he, yeah. Elon Musk. He 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 freaking loves them. So he loves those that series as well. So yeah, the um, the the. The first two of those, just read the instructions, and of course, I still love you, are actually ship names from Player of Games, just to give you a uh, idea of that the, these aren't unknown books, um, but it's just that they're not very well known at all. No, yeah, I, I, what I meant is they're known, but it's interesting to me how many people in our actual lives probably have never even heard of them, or ones that even Mike and I talked about. Uh, how many people we know that don't read, or even in school, like you had to read a book every week, at least in, in most classes, you had to go to the library and grab something. How many people would either grab the same book over and over again, or would grab a book and pretend to read uh, and then not remember? It, that was my mind. I, I would always grab a new book and read it. I, I could go through a 300 page book, you know, every other day. Like it would probably take me two days if I wasn't just sitting down and reading all day. Yeah. And, and, and I would, if it wasn't reading science fiction or, or like a, a fantasy or even like when I was younger, like a goosebumps book, I was that kid that would grab a biography and go like, I would read about, let's say I read, you know, a couple Asimov books. Then I would grab one week, just a biography on Asimov. And that's what I would read. My teacher would be like, well, it's supposed to be fiction reading. I'm like, I want to learn about the writer that wrote the fiction I like. (laughs) And that was what I would, and I got away with doing that. And then it would be like, like you guys said, you'd grab random books on, on actual science. Like I remember reading, I was on a black hole kick for like six months where I was trying to read anything I could read on it that was not a technical document that I couldn't understand. And I'd be sitting there in class and the teacher would go, what are you, what are you doing? 
learning about how you exist and then i turn my face back down to the book and just creep the teacher out on purpose <laughs> it was my second grade teacher who was creeped out that i was reading frankenstein that you know everyone's laying down on like blankets for reading day at, in second grade and it's like oh that sounds like a kindergarten thing no we did it even in second grade it was just reading day and i had frankenstein there and teacher just couldn't wrap her brain around it like why is this kid reading frankenstein of all things and it's not like it's a, a an illustrated book no it's like this old dusty hardcover that my grandparents had you know my 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 uh, fifth grade teacher thought i was a bit of an odd duck when i read it uh whereas my contemporaries were reading goosebumps uh no you you want you want to freak your teachers out where you have to go to a guidance counselor meeting because of what you were reading uh try fifth grade uh we're having again it was a reading afternoon it was a double english period and they said what are you reading and everybody's pulling out their books and it's like their goosebumps or animorphs and all the scholastic books and what is alex reading nietzsche because <laughs> i because i nothing yes because i pull I, I i was going through the library and it wasn't the school library i went to the regular library and that's what i brought in to read and they're like why i'm like because i've heard those sayings in movies like the the, the, yeah, the you nerd. want to understand it like there's some joy in your heart that you got from watching those movies and those quotes and therefore you want to understand it that's totally yeah that. yeah so I'm, I'm reading it and they're like why they're like that's uh it's a little heavy for you to be reading when you're 10 11 years old and i'm like i'm reading what i want to read and then uh you know to the point where the teacher looks at me what what did you learn today you know we're learning in our books what'd you learn today and i was like i learned that when you you know don't stare too much into the abyss or it stares back. Alex, we have to have a talk after class. <laughs> Life is meaningless and we yeah, all they're like, they're like, oh, you're going to become a nihilist because you read a book when you were 11. I'm like, no, it's just a cool book. You know, I, I, that's all I was taking away from it. But they were they were worried I was going to spread what I learned in the book to the rest of the kids. And I'm like, isn't that Nietzsche's point? <laughs> like, like it was kind of heavy stuff to be reading and did i grasp all of it no so i went back the next week and picked out a book that was nietzsche basically it was nietzsche for dummies and i'm like now i sort of understand it so i don't have to pretend but that was that was an interesting thing go and talk to the guys because alex are you depressed I'm like no why why are you reading that and i'm like because i chose to read like that's what bothered me was like when they were like hey there must be something wrong with your with your emotions if you're reading that book if that was the case, then the book shouldn't exist. It shouldn't be available. The librarian should have said, you can't take that out. No. When I went to the public library and I took that out, the librarian looked at me and said, hmm, have fun. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they didn't care because they were confused because they're like, that's not at our school library. I'm like, no, it's at a regular people library where people can take it whatever they want. Oddly enough, I think the, the book I probably checked out from the public library the most growing up was actually the Starfleet Technical Manual, <laughs> but that's, that's <laughs> science fiction, but it's just not really a story, is it? Um, but yeah, no, but, but, but I mean, if, if it gets your mind, if it gets your imagination going and, and those technical manuals, like it was the one that, cause I know they made one that was like those car manuals, like to look like that. It's not really carmatic. It's like printed on one side of the paper from for a lot of it, but it's more like diagrams and like here's how to make yeah. a Starfleet uniform. Here's here's the tricorder and a cutaway of the tricorder. But and, it was made back in like the seventies and and you know what that expands your mind too. So it's it's not like you're reading garbage. 
it, it wasn't a harlequin romance novel <laughs> and i built a phaser out of like old tv parts it did not look like a phaser but you know when i was like a you know nine or ten hot damn i just made a phaser you know oh yeah great so I think we've covered up pretty much uh, each of our kind of experiences and some relevant books that have basically shaped how we view um, sci-fi. So if you have uh, any suggestions for us to take a look, uh, please feel free to reach out to show feedback at thisweekingeek.net or feedback, I think, at geekcastradio.com, I think is the other uh, email address. Um, Or if you can find uh, Steve on Twitter, which is at SCP21. Uh, if you want to respond to us, me and Alex, the show Twitter is at This Week in Geek. Uh, Alex is the one who controls that account, but uh, we do reply to all things on there. I'm not as busy on, on my personal Twitter. Honestly, it's cute animals and political stuff. Uh, so uh, anyway, uh, we do appreciate all of you who've sat through this entirely fascinating conversation. So for This Week in Geek and GeekCast Radio, we have been... Oh, I'm Aaron Pollier. And Alex. And I've been Mike the Birdman Dodd saying live long and prosper.